You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's, um, let's bow our heads now in prayer and let's pray over the word before I begin to preach. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit to us. God, thank you for the gift of the message of the gospel, which is meant to encourage our hearts as you continue the work of saving us and changing us. Lord, I I believe that your word is powerful and active and working, and that when your word is preached, it goes forth and does not come back void. And so, God, I know all these things about you and about the gospel and about your word. In regards to my heart this evening, Lord God, I pray that you would cleanse my heart and purify my heart and Lord, that you would make my heart right even in these moments as I prepare to bring your word to your people. God, I ask that you would um, save some through the preaching of your word and that you would cause change to happen in people's lives as well. So God, I pray those things. I pray, God, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would um, make them acceptable in your sight. God, you are my rock and my refuge, my redeemer and my savior. And I just thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. I'll start off with a question for you guys. I want to provoke your thinking in this way. When I ask this question, what kind of life do you live? So I want you to think about that. What kind of life do you live? How would you describe your life to someone if they asked you how you live? Would you say that you live your life to the fullest or would you describe your life as careless? Would you describe your life as rough and full of dark seasons or would you maybe describe it as light and full of open doors and opportunities? Would you describe your life as one that has been lived maybe on the straight and narrow, or would you describe it as one that has been lived on the path of brokenness and pain? What kind of life do you have? What kind of life do you live? How would other people describe your life? If they were able to describe the way that you have lived, how would other people describe the life that you live? Would other people describe your life as uptight, prim and proper? Would they describe your life as a total wreck and out of control? I think it would do us all some good. It would do us all some good sometimes to listen to other people around us, to listen to the voices around us, because I think that most of us might find that we have a much higher view of ourselves than we are either able to admit or recognize. That sometimes we might think we're living high on the hog when in reality we're living in the dump. We may think that our lives are all unicorns and rainbows. Until one day maybe something happens that wakes us up from our stupor, wakes us up from our dreams. We realize that even though we have everything put together nicely on the external and on the outside, the reality is that on the inside we are an absolute train wreck. Ask yourself, how do you choose to live your life? What choices do you make in your life as you 
live? How do you choose to live your life on a daily basis, moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day? We can either live our lives worried about keeping the exterior clean while the inside of our lives goes to hell in a handbasket, or we can live our lives in a visible state of humility and need and acceptance and dependence. We can either live our lives in total dependence upon what we can achieve, what we can earn, what we can accumulate, what we can accomplish, or we can live our lives in total dependence upon what Christ has achieved. What Christ has earned, what Christ has accumulated, what Christ has accomplished for us. When it comes to the Bible and what Jesus says about how we live our lives, we learn that there's really only two ways to live. We either live a life that trusts in ourselves or we can live a life that trusts in God. We can either live life that esteems ourselves, or we can live a life that esteems God. We can either live a life that promotes ourselves, or we can live a life that promotes God. There's only two ways to live, and the reality for every one of us in this room, and every one of us that gets to hear this message, is the choice is ours. There's only two ways to live. The choice is ours. Look at Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke tells us that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <coughs> I fast twice a week. <clears throat> I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's preaching to a group of people who are self-righteous. And he tells this story about two different men. Two different prayers, two different destinations. One man appears to be as good of a person as you can find, while, while the other man appears to be the worst person that you can find. One man offers what appears to be a good prayer, while the other man offers what appears to be a short and uneducated prayer. One man is declared good, while the other man is declared not so good. In all of this, we learn that there are two kinds of people in this world. There's two kinds of prayer life. There's two roads that we can travel. And the question for us is, is what kind of person are you? What kind of, what kind of prayers do you pray? What kind of road do you travel? What destination are you headed towards? What, what kind of life do you live? There's only two ways to live. 
And the choice is yours. Look at how Jesus describes two different kinds of people in our passage. In verses 9 through 10, we see a Pharisee and a tax collector. We see two different kinds of people. We see a contrast between a man who as, is as religious as a person as you can find. And then we see another man who is as filthy as you could possibly get. Notice Notice as Jesus is telling us about these two men, notice who he's talking to, like I've already referenced. Luke tells us that Jesus is telling this story to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, these people that Jesus is preaching to, they believe they are okay. They believe they're okay because they do a lot of right things, right? They do a lot of right things. Maybe they show up for church on time. Maybe they're there early when they're scheduled to serve. Maybe they never miss a day. Maybe they're the biggest financial contributors. Maybe they carefully take notes on every sermon they hear. Maybe their marriages are pristine and their kids are well behaved. I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly what kind of personal rightness these people were trusting in. But I do know this. They weren't trusting in pure rightness or righteousness is the word that Jesus uses. They weren't trusting in pure rightness that only God can apply to us through the cross of Christ. And notice, notice the evidence of how these people trusted themselves. Look at the evidence in the story. One of the distinguishing marks of someone who trusts in their own righteousness is their continual looking down their nose at other people who don't measure up. Luke tells us that these people who trust in their own righteousness also treated others with contempt. You think about this word, contempt. And to look at someone else with contempt is to despise them. It's to be frustrated with them. It's to even maybe even hate them because they don't measure up. They don't conform to the standard. And it's not just that they don't drive nice cars, they don't wear nice clothing. That's, that's not the kind of contempt that Luke is describing for us in this passage, or even that Jesus is confronting. It has nothing to do with the externals in that way. This isn't about mere physical wealth. This isn't about mere possessions. This isn't necessarily even about status. What Jesus is confronting in this passage is the heart of the religious person who, who believes that all of their external behavior is what makes them right with God. And then subsequently despises other people who haven't attained the same higher level of living that they have attained. It's this attitude of contempt and despising others who are not good enough. Notice, notice, notice this. Notice where Jesus even strategically places the two characters in this story. You think about this. This is, this is important to notice. Jesus says that these two men went up to the temple to pray. In other words, <clears throat> like this isn't just some trip to the supermarket, right? This isn't just a trip to the supermarket or the auto parts store where people can get together and, uh, and compare their, 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 their worldly wealth or their, um, their worldly status. This isn't just that. This is taking place at a local space of worship. It's a place of prayer. A place where God's word is taught. 
Like where else would, would spiritual elitism rear its ugly head in the first place than in the church? How many people do you think are sitting here right now listening to this message? How many do you think, how many of you maybe are sitting here listening to this message? A place where spiritual growth is valued. And trusting in your own ability to be made right with God rather than trusting in God to make you right. How many people do you think are hearing this in this moment? that look down their noses in contempt and frustration and anger as they despise the person in the row right next to them or right in front of them. Some levels, I think, like we're all guilty of this. The question for us is like, do we really understand how different the two men in our story are? I mean, have you already checked out is the question as you listen to this and as you study this? Have you already checked out of what maybe the Holy Spirit would maybe want to confront deep within you? Do you really understand the difference between these two men? Jesus tells us that the two men that were at the temple were very different men because one was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. Two men sitting side by side in the same place of worship, claiming to worship the same Savior, listening to the same sermon, joining in the same prayers, eating the same communion meal together, enjoying the same coffee from the coffee window in the back, dropping change in the same offering box. Even though these two men were in the same worship space together, their hearts were in very different places. A Pharisee was known to be the most spiritual and the tax collector was known to be the worst sinner. The Pharisees, they were loved by people and the tax collectors were despised and hated and held in contempt. Like the Pharisees were, were welcomed guests at the party because they were typically wealthy, well-mannered, spoke of God's blessings. Tax collectors were viewed as scum of the earth. They were viewed as scum of the earth because they stole money from their own people and made money off of them. Which person do you want to be? Want to be the tax collector? You want to be the Pharisee? And the reality for every one of us in this room is that we do not want to be the tax collector. There's not a single person in this room that says, yeah, that's who I want to be. And if that's where you're at, if that's where you're at, then pay attention to what the tax collector prays. The reality is every one of us wants to be like the Pharisee. Really. No one in his or her right mind wants to be a filthy tax collector. The question is, what kind of person are you? Are you living a life that trusts in yourself or are you living a life that trusts in God? Do you see others with contempt because they don't measure up to your level of holiness? Do you despise other people because you can't stand their filth? Do you constantly work through your checklist of right living so that you can ease your mind? And there's only two ways to live. There's only two ways to live. You can live a life that trusts in yourself or you can live a life that trusts in God. The choice is yours. Look how Jesus describes two different kinds of prayer now. 
In verses 11 through 13, we see a prayer life that is severely dependent upon one's own accomplishments. Then we see this other prayer life that is completely dependent upon God. We see a contrast between one kind of prayer life and then we see another kind of prayer life. One that bubbles up out of self-esteem and then another one that bubbles up out of God-esteem. Notice the prayer life of the Pharisee. Jesus says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this task collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Sounds like a pretty good dude, right? What do you think about it? He doesn't steal money from his people. He doesn't treat people wrongly like the unjust judge that we studied about last week. He doesn't sleep around. He certainly doesn't have the reputation of a scumbag like the tax collector next to him. He fasts twice a week instead of once a year like the law calls for. He doesn't steal from God. He doesn't steal from God. He doesn't get his paycheck during the week and go, it's all mine. He didn't do that. He actually gives more to the God, more to God than the law requires. Because he gives a tenth of every single dime that comes in. Really sounds like a pretty good guy. That's a pretty solid Christian dude, if you ask me, right? Just based on the externals. The problem with this Pharisee isn't necessarily what he does or doesn't do. Like, don't get distracted. The problem is not in what he does or doesn't do, because what he does and doesn't do is actually good stuff. I mean, the reality is that I wish that just half of the professing Christians that I uh, uh, rub shoulders with would live this way. Honestly, like this would be awesome. The problem isn't in what he does or doesn't do. The problem with this Pharisee is his self-esteem. He stands by himself because he doesn't want to get too close to the filthy tax collector. And then as he prays, he uses this personal pronoun, I, no less than five times in this text. It's worth worth catching that for a minute. No less than five times in this text, as he prays, he uses the personal pronoun, I. Who do you think is his God? Who do you think he's more concerned about? Who do you think he esteems the most? He uses God's name one time. This dude is so self-inflated, so self-absorbed. He esteems himself so much that he barely recognizes the fact that his prayer is really just a long list of his accomplishments as though, uh, as though he needs to remind God of everything that he has done to deserve God's attention. almost as though he's making this list of all the reasons why it's okay for him to look upon another sinner with contempt, frustration, and anger, and resentment, and hatred. This Pharisee's prayer life is riddled, riddled with high self-esteem. 
And listen to me when I say that. It's riddled with high self-esteem. Has to make you wonder about all the psycho babble that we hear today about raising our low self-esteem. Now you read half of the Christian books out there today, and they are riddled with trying to help people raise their low self-esteem. The problem with this is that the scriptures, the scriptures don't talk to us about having high self-esteem. Other than in the sense that if we have high self-esteem, it's the opposite of God-esteem. It's called self-worship. We're called to worship God, not ourselves. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better to esteem ourselves less and esteem God more? Like, isn't this problem of God esteem really the problem that's at the core of the human heart? I mean, you think about your kids, parents in this room. You think about your kids for a minute and your, your struggle to discipline them, to correct them, to keep them on the straight and narrow, to teach them up and to bring them up in the admonition of the Lord and to teach them and to train them. You think about your struggle to do that as a parent. Don't you know that the reality in that struggle is that your children are just as sinful as you and that they do not esteem God naturally. And as parents, our job is to be the gatekeeper for our children. I'm getting ahead of myself because next week is actually that passage. So if you're interested in some parenting tips, look at next week's passage. But that's the reality for us. Is the deep issue of our hearts has everything to do with the fact that we esteem and worship ourselves more than we worship God. We can cloak our language in all sorts of religious jargon. But the reality is that when I becomes what captivates the longings of my heart, then God ceases to captivate the desires and the longings of my heart. When I begin to esteem myself more, then I begin to resist esteeming God. That's the reality. Notice Notice the prayer life of the tax collector now. Jesus says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So observe the fact that this tax collector won't even get close to the Pharisee because he feels unworthy. Observe the fact that this tax collector can't even lift his eyes off the ground because of his shame. Observe the fact that this tax collector beats his chest in anxiety because of his despicable position. Observe the fact that this tax collector cries out to God and asks him to be merciful towards him because he is a sinner. The tax collector can't make a list of right things done or wrong things done. You can't even use personal pronouns. You can only see himself as a sinner in need of God's mercy. And it's an interesting thing. When, when he uses this word for mercy, when Jesus uses it, it's a very intentional use of that word in this text. It's only used a few times throughout the New Testament. And it's in relationship to 
words in the Old Testament, um, in, the, in the Hebrew. And as you, as you do a word study on the word that he uses, and I did not memorize the Greek word that he used because I'm really not that smart. Besides, make you guys thirsty enough to go search it out yourselves. But here's the meaning of the word that Jesus uses that's only used a few times when he uses this word for mercy. The meaning of that word is that, is that what he's actually asking for is for God to, uh, to cover and remove his sin. And at the same time to divert or turn away God's wrath. There's actually two theological terms. These words, I do know, it makes me look smart. And if you want to look smart, here, write these down. Expiation and propitiation. Okay, everybody's like, wrong. Right? Big words. Expiation and propitiation. These are two words for God's mercy. So... We have to back up the train for just a minute think about it this way. You guys maybe have heard me say many times that, that God's love has two sides to it. It's one coin, right? And there's a heads and a tails side. And on either side of God's love, you have God's mercy and God's grace. And God's grace is, is you being given something that you didn't deserve. And mercy is God withholding what you actually deserve. If you take away either one of those from the coin of God's love, you have a, a misunderstanding of God's love. You only have a, a piece of what God's love means. You need both mercy and grace to really get a picture of God's love. So you've heard me use that illustration. I still think it's good. Now if you think about God's mercy alone... The two sides of God's mercy is what we're really asking for is this. When you and I cry out for mercy, what we're really asking for is for him to cover our sin and to remove our sin, to take it away. The problem is that you or I can't do that. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin in Genesis, right? Tried to cover their sin with some, uh, with some fig leaves. How many of you guys know that fig leaves aren't the best clothing? That's why they don't sell them in Walmart or any other place for that matter. Tried to cover themselves with fig leaves because they were ashamed of their sin. But the problem was because Adam and Eve were broken, sinful people at that point, they could not adequately cover or remove their sin. They were infected with that sin. Which meant they couldn't come into God's presence. So what did God do? If you think back in Genesis, for those of you that know the scriptures a little bit. What did God do? God shed blood. God shed blood. Killed an animal. Sacrifice on behalf of people. The thing that I love about the scriptures is that the message of the gospel and the message of, of, of the shed blood needing to happen to cover and remove our sin so that we could then be in God's presence is clear from the beginning all throughout. And Jesus and his cross is the pinnacle of that picture. In Christ, our sins are removed and covered. It's total cleansing. It's total healing. So that you can then come into God's presence. And at the same time, the other side of the coin is not just removed and covered on one side. But the other side is that God's wrath, which has been kindled against us like a fire. God's wrath, his anger against our sin. 
In a moment, you will sin. There are some of you that are listening to me right now. You are sinning in your mind. You are sinning in your heart even in these moments. And even in those moments, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you've not trusted in Christ, then the message is that you need God's mercy because you need Him to remove and cover your sin. And you also need Him to divert His wrath. His wrath is coming on account of the sins of mankind. You and I cannot just walk around throughout our life and go, Oh, I sin. Everybody does it. Too bad. Oh, I sinned. I'm never going to get any better. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that I've heard from people when it comes to sin. All of the explaining away, all the excuse making, all the he said, she said, all the blame shifting. (laughs) You guys know, we all do this. We cannot divert God's wrath and anger from our sin. Only Christ could do that. So when we're asking for God's mercy, we're asking for him to cover and remove on one side. And then we're also asking for him to divert his anger and his wrath from us. That happens in the cross of Christ. This tax collector, when he comes to God to pray in the temple... He can only see himself as a sinner in need of God's mercy, which covers and removes sin, propitiation, and diverts or turns away God's wrath, expiation. This task collector esteems God more than he esteems himself. Ask yourself, what kind of prayers do you pray? Are you living a life of prayer that esteems yourself? Are you living a life of prayer that esteems God? Do you find yourself consumed with your accomplishments? Or maybe even in the same lane or the same vein, do you find yourself consumed with all of your failures? Does does, does the word I dominate your thinking? Is the word I the most famous name on your heart? Or is God's name the most famous name on your heart when you pray? Are you coming to God cloaked in your righteousness? Or are you desperate for His mercy? Are you desperate for His mercy, which covers and removes your sin and diverts and turns away God's wrath on account of your sin? There's only two ways to live. There's only two ways to live. You can either live a life that esteems yourself You can live a life that esteems God. The choice is yours. Look now at how Jesus describes two very different roads. In verse 14, we see one road that is paved in self-exaltation. And we see another road that is paved in humility. We see a contrast between this path of pride which leads to the destination of destruction. And then we see uh, the path of humility which leads to the destination of salvation. Notice the last verse of our passage. Jesus tells us that this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
To be exalted in one sense is to be promoted. Is to be promoted from a lower place to a higher place. Think of this in terms of your vocation. Right? If, you, if you work hard at your job and you do everything your boss tells you to do while one of your coworkers is slacking off and showing up late or calling in sick while they're really out partying. Like who gets the promotion? Who gets the exaltation? You get the promotion, right? We get the promotion because we work hard for it. But only, only our employers can actually declare that promotion. You can't declare a promotion unless your employer declares it for you first, right? If you go trying to declare that you got promoted or exalted from a lower position to a higher position without your boss declaring that first, what's probably going to happen? You're probably going to get demoted some more. <laughs> demoted instead of promoted, right? So you got to wait until the declaration from your employer comes stating that you have been exalted and promoted from the place you once were into a higher place. So even in this world, in our daily lives, our exaltation, our promotion, even though we got to work hard for it, is still under the rule and the reign of an earthly master, our bosses. But with God, it's different. Think about promotion. Think about promotion and exaltation when it comes to God. It's different. And that's the whole point of this passage, isn't it? Is that the reason why Jesus is sharing this passage? He's saying, hey, don't exalt yourselves. Don't promote yourself. Don't esteem yourself. Esteem God. Promote God. Exalt God, not yourself. With God, it's different because our promotion or our exaltation is declared over us from the standpoint of what Christ has done instead of what we have done. The concept of justification, when Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified while the other one wasn't. Jesus is doing what God does as a father in heaven over each and every one of us the moment that we come to faith in Christ. It's a declaration that God makes over you justified. It means simply not guilty. It means right this is, this is the statement that God declares over you and over your heart when you place your faith in the work of Christ at the cross and, and the work of Christ through uh, the resurrection from the tomb. This is what God does when you place your faith in Him. He says you are justified. You're made right. You're made good. Then if you read the book of James, you see James saying, hey, if you really are justified... Live like it, right? Faith without a lifestyle that proves it is dead faith, right? That's what James says. This passage, what Jesus is saying, the point in all of this is that we can either live a life that promotes ourselves, that seeks to self-justify ourselves, that seeks to defend ourselves. We can either live that kind of life that promotes us like we've been conditioned to do all of our lives, working for it, trying to earn it. Or we can live a life that promotes God. 
We can live a life that promotes God and exalts Him instead. We can either live our lives from a place of God's declaration of love over us, or we can live our lives from a place of trying to earn or manipulate or coerce or control or force God into making that declaration of love over us. I meet many people, it seems like, every day who can claim Christ with their lips, but then their lives are far from claiming Christ. And oftentimes I think this is a big issue. This is part of that big issue is where do you find your justification if you find it in any place other than Christ? You're headed towards destruction. And we're conditioned this way. From the get-go, conditioned to try to cover ourselves with our own fig leaves. To try to work or earn to get God to love us. Rather than living from a place where we understand that He does love us. And our justification happens on the cross. Which then would produce change. It would produce worshippers of God rather than worshippers of self. You read the entire book of Romans and what you see is an issue of worshipping that which has been created rather than the Creator Himself. You know, people ask the question, why is my marriage falling apart? Because you're worshiping yourself. Because you're worshiping your wife. You're worshiping your husband. You're not worshiping God. Why do my friendships fall apart? Because you're worshiping your friends. You're trying to get from them what only God can give you. And from the get-go, the serpent has been trying to deceive God's people, hasn't he? From the get-go. Did God really say that? Did, did, did God really say that? Let's think about this for a minute. Did God really say that that's the way you would get justified? Or did God say it would happen this way? From the get-go, what Satan has been doing has been trying to deceive every one of us to believing that the place that we can look to to be our God is ourselves. This is why when Paul says, I crucify myself every day, I want to be crucified with Christ. He's saying, I want to put myself to death so that Christ might live in me. And notice, notice, the, notice the declaration that Jesus makes over the tax collector. Jesus says the tax collector went down to his house justified. Jesus declares that the tax collector is justified. Again, think with me. What does it really mean for God to declare you and I as justified? To be justified is to simply be made right in God's sight. To be justified by God is to have Him look upon us and to declare us as no longer guilty of sin. To be justified by God is to be promoted by God from the land of the dead to the land of the living. When you and I begin to understand that we cannot justify or promote ourselves, then we can stop pretending. We can stop pretending to be better than we really are. We can stop posing as spiritually elite. We can stop hiding our sin in our performance. We can stop posturing ourselves in front of God as though He owes us something. 
If we begin to live from a place of God's declaration of loving justification and promotion over us, then we will begin to live in a way that exalts or promotes God rather than exalting or promoting ourselves. What kind of road do you travel? Are you living a life that travels the road of self-promotion? Are you living a life that travels the road of God promotion? Are you a prideful poser or are you a humble follower? Are you still working to earn God's declaration of love? Or are you resting in the fact that God has lovingly declared you good because of the cross of Christ? There's only two ways to live. You can either live a life that promotes yourself, or you can live a life that promotes God. The choice is yours. As I wrap this thing up, I want to remind you, a big broad summary of what I just said to you. There are two kinds of people. There's two kinds of people, there's two kinds of prayer, and there's two roads to travel. There's really only two ways to live. You can be the kind of person who believes you're okay with God because of your efforts and your works. Or you can be the kind of person that knows there is nothing you can do to cover or remove your filthiness before a holy God. Your prayer life can either be focused on your accomplishments or it can be focused on what God has accomplished at the cross of Christ. As Christ's blood covers your sin and turns away God's wrath. You can either travel down one road that is paved in pride that leads to destruction. Or you can travel down a road that is paved in humility that leads to salvation. You can either live a life that trusts in yourself or you can live a life that trusts in God. You can live a life that esteems yourself or you can live a life that esteems God. You can live a life that promotes yourself or you can live a life that promotes God. When Jesus calls us to come and follow him, he does it holding a cross in his hand and he's holding it out to you. And he's saying, I went to mine willingly. Will you pick up yours and will you carry it? There's only two ways to live. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage. And thank you for the challenge in this passage that we're given. Being reminded that there are only two ways to live. One way that lives esteeming you, promoting you, trusting in you. The other way to live is a life that is devoid of you, apart from you. It esteems ourselves, promotes ourself, trusts in ourself. And so Lord, I pray God tonight that you um, would take this message and remind us that there were not two ways for you to live. There was one path that you had marked out from the beginning, since before the beginning of time, since before the foundations of the world, you had this plan and this road marked out for you, that you would send your son. 
and that your son Jesus would die upon a cross in a brutal and painful and horrible way so that really despicable and filthy people like us could come to you and cry out for mercy. And that in those moments of doing that, because of your death upon a cross, because of your sacrifice, you would give us that mercy. And every one of us in this room, regardless of how long we think we've known you, or how long we've actually known you, need your mercy. I know that every one of us in this room is a lot worse than we really think we are. Every one of us in this room is a lot worse than other people think we are. And yet, you've given your son to die upon a cross and to be resurrected to new life a few days later so that our hearts could receive the healing that, that we need. I know that there's many in this room who are struggling in the bonds of sin, struggling in the bonds of self-righteousness, thinking even that just by being here tonight and sitting in a pew that somehow this makes them better. But I pray that you would meet them here, right now in these moments. Being here is good. But God, I know that only their hearts will be good if you will touch them and change them. But I know that there are people here that They're wrestling deep inside with deep wounds that have sprouted up in like little trees of pride. So God, I pray that you would break our hearts by the picture of the cross, reminding us that when it comes to humility, you, you walked the road that led to a destination of salvation for all as you carried the cross as you let sinful people beat you and break you, as you let them nail you to a cross, your words were, forgive them, Father. I don't know what they do. I know, God, that there are many who came in tonight and who also may hear this message throughout the week who have been deceived for so long into believing that they're okay. And the reality is that they're walking down pathways and roads because of the longings and the desires of their hearts that are leading towards destruction. So God, I pray that you would bring healing and wholeness and life. I pray, God, that you would bring salvation. I pray, God, that you would bring the fruit of repentance in people's lives. I pray specifically, God, that individuals would no longer look to other people and things to satisfy them, but they would look to you. Pray God for families, for husbands and wives, and for their marriages to be restored, not as they force each other to do better, but as they look to you for healing and wholeness. I pray for families with children who aren't following you. I pray God that you would give parents the boldness and the courage to follow you by leading their children into your presence. Not just through the preaching and the teaching of your word, but through regular times of prayer and correction and repentance 
And in the midst of that, God, I pray that you would bring them to the foot of your cross and remind them of what you gave so that we had this opportunity. Help us to be people that see those two very different ways of living life. Give us the strength to choose you, Christ, each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. There'll be somebody near the front to serve communion. I say this every week. If you're with us and you're not a believer, if you're living a life that is carrying the evidence and the fruit of unrepentance, and you haven't had the opportunity to confess that sin and, and walk in repentance from that, meaning that you haven't confessed sin and pursued change and trusted in the gospel, if you haven't done that, we'd ask that you not take communion. It would be to drink judgment upon yourself if you do this. If you're here and you're not a believer, we'd ask that you not take communion because it would be very meaningless for you. We're glad that you're here. There'd be a, one or two of us near the front to pray with you. Like if, if you're in either one of those categories, struggling in sin that you haven't confessed and repented of, I would encourage you to come to the front and get some prayer. Uh, if you're here and you're not, a, not a believer and you're hearing some of this for the first time and you're struck, if you're here and you've thought you've been a believer for a long time, you just realized I wasn't, I, I need to be, it'd be good for you to come down front maybe and pray with some of our people in the front as well. If you're here and you're a believer, trusting in Christ, if in these moments you've been struck to the core and you've been reminded of the cross of Christ, His shed blood, His broken body, if you've been reminded of those things, been reminded to trust in Him for your sustenance, then we would encourage you and invite you to come and to engage in communion. Remembering that it was Christ's body who was broken, Christ's blood that was poured out on your behalf so that you could have this opportunity. It's the way that we rehearse the gospel together. So let's close in worship and communion together. Thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.